Welcome to the Willing to Listen South Bruce Proud podcast. Willing to Listen is a grassroots volunteer group based in South Bruce, Ontario, that is dedicated to thoroughly investigating multiple aspects of Canada's proposed deep geological repository for spent nuclear fuel. I'm Sheila Wittick, and I'm so excited to have you join me as we delve into this controversial project. Today I'm joined by Bill Daly. He is involved with the PHAI, or the Port Hope Area Initiative, cleaning up legacy nuclear waste around the Port Hope area, and he's going to talk to us a little bit about the projects that are ongoing there. Thanks so much for joining me today, Bill. I really do appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Thanks, and if you wouldn't mind just taking a couple of minutes to introduce yourself to our listeners. Yes, uh, my name is Bill Daly. I am the communications director with Canadian Nuclear Laboratories. Uh, Canadian Nuclear Laboratories is Canada's national laboratory in nuclear science and research and technology. Our mission is to advance nuclear science for a clean and secure world. And part of our missions is to clean up um, legacy historic waste, um, radioactive waste that has been the result of uh, previous practices um, in multiple sites across Canada. And today in particular, I'd like to talk about the Port Hope Area Initiative Project, which is um, Canada's largest environmental remediation project. And it involves the cleanup of approximately 1.7 million cubic meters of low-level radioactive waste in the towns of Port Hope, which is a small town in Ontario, about an hour away from Toronto, as well as uh, Southeast Clarington in the Port Granby, which is a small hamlet. That project has been going on since 2001, and we are now well underway in terms of the cleanup. And so just for anyone who's not familiar with um, the Port Hope Area Initiative, could you give us a little bit of background on, you know, where this waste came from and why we are cleaning it up? So in terms of why we need to do this cleanup and, and how this low-level radioactive waste ended up in Port Hope and in the area is actually a, quite a unique and interesting story. And it goes all the way back to the 1930s. Uh, back in the 1930s, you may have heard of the Labine brothers, the Labine brothers, uh, led by Gilbert Labine, actually at the time had a company, El Dorado Gold Mine, and they were in the process of searching for gold. And that took them to Northwest Territories. Back in the 1930s, obviously, uh, it was time of the gold rush, and um, Canada was definitely part of that. And as the Labines were searching, they ended up opening up a mine in Great Bear Lake. And what they didn't find was gold. But in fact, what they did find was essentially equivalent to that. It was, they found pitch blend ore. And they realized quite quickly that pitch blend ore could be refined to make radium. And at the time, essentially, they were ushering in the atomic age in Canada. Uh, radium was a, something that sort of had been recently identified that could be used for a number of different purposes, uh, not only in the kind of medical fields, but also in the commercial fields. So things like x-rays, luminous dials for airplanes, even there were even other kind of commercial products like radium creams and all the rest of it. And really what they could do is for about a gram of radium, they could 
fetch about seventy-five to ninety thousand dollars on the market for a gram. And at the time, you can imagine in the nineteen thirties what kind of money that meant. So that that made them realize that it would be worthwhile for them to actually refine this and process this ore in order to generate the radium. So what did they need to need to do? They needed to find a way to do it and a place to do it. And after searching, they, they actually came across Port Hope. And in Port Hope, there were old rundown factories on the kind of waterfront area uh, that were not used at the time. And there was also a willing workforce of people that uh, you know, needed jobs and needed economic stability for that kind of at the time, which was a growing town. And so they decided that they would kind of refurbish their facility there and, and set up shop on the waterfront in order to do the refining of radium. In order to get the pitch blend ore down there, they had to actually transport it along barge, rail, truck, you name it, all the way from the Northwest Territories down to Southern Ontario. In order to actually refine the radium at the processing plant, it took about 10 tons of raw material in order to actually get the, the radium out of the, so even a gram of radium to come out of, of this process took a lot, a lot of material. And that material went through processing, which ended up becoming essentially contaminated dirt. Now, we have to keep in mind that at the time, we're talking about the 1930s, 1940s timeframe when this is happening, uh, the understanding of you know, radioactivity and contamination is not the same as it is today. And so in the process of actually um, developing and, and refining this radium, all of the kind of soil and dirt byproduct that was created was essentially, first of all, stored right at their site. So big piles of dirt right on the center pier, which is a pier that exists today in Port Hope. Um, there's lots of pictures of it you can find. Um, and then they would eventually actually start giving away this material because there was too much to store on site. So people at the time, the town was being built and people would take this as fill for free. They would take it, they would build their homes, uh, El Dorado used it to shore up uh, ravines. They literally dumped it right into the harbor. Uh, as it continued to build up and build up, they had to actually uh, send it to other municipal landfills that are now closed. Uh, eventually, they even had to start sending it about 15 minutes along the Lakeshore Road west into Clarington, into the hamlet of Port Granby, where uh, they actually bought a facility right on the lakeshore site uh, and started end dumping the material uh, there as well. So this, so this practice of kind of spreading this material through, I'd say about 15 to 20 years time, uh, ended up in a situation where the material had been spread around multiple communities and, and well throughout Port Hope in particular. As we get to the 1970s, uh, you know, science begins to change. Our understanding of radioactivity and contamination begins to change. Rules change. The Atomic Energy Control Board, which is now the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission, was the regulator at the time. And they, they kind of started saying, El Dorado, you need to do something with this, with this waste. Well, meanwhile, at the same time, 
El Dorado had been bought by uh, the federal government because they had switched their processing to uranium refining in order to help the war effort that was going on. So the federal government was then tasked with starting to look at this issue and um, I actually hired companies um, to go out and to start to actually do testing in Port Granby and in Port Hope to figure out, you know, what is the, what is the signature? What is the impact of uh, all of this kind of spreading of this material? Well, they quickly found that there was a lot of material spread around. This, of course, uh, became well known in the public. Uh, media, Toronto Star, the rest of it eventually sort of caught on to this issue. And so the community and the municipalities said, well, we've got to do something about this issue. And so in about the late 80s and through the 90s, they set up a siting task force in order to go around sort of what like what the NWMO is up to. They started going around uh, to community to community looking for a willing host where we could essentially send the waste. Now, to maybe not to many people's surprise, uh, a whole bunch of communities said, well, no, we don't want to take your radioactive waste. And so after about a 10-year search, they realized uh, that in order to deal with the waste, the community would have to come up with a solution of their own and deal with it in situ or in their own communities. So the communities started putting forth concepts where we would, they would build some sort of facility within the community that could be a final repository for this material. Eventually, the municipalities of Port Hope and Clarington um, lobbied the government, the federal government, and eventually came to an agreement. And this agreement formed a, a legal agreement between Clarington, Port Hope, and uh, the federal government that the waste would be cleaned up once and for all. And that launched the Port Hope Area Initiative Project, which uh, my company is now managing. And the Port Hope Area Initiative Project, which again is well underway, has been in the process of cleaning up this material and in fact building a long-term, actually two long-term waste management facilities in order to uh, permanently dispose of this material for the long-term. So we have one uh, Port Hope long-term waste management facility that is currently in operation, meaning it's accepting waste from the community right now. And then we have another Port Granby long-term waste management, management facility, which is actually right across the street from that Lakeshore site that I was talking about. And that facility has actually just been closed because we have just completed the project of moving 1.3 million tons off of the Lakeshore site into this secure containment. And we have now remediated that site, meaning that clean soil and green grass is growing out there and the uh, Lake Ontario is being further protected uh, by this project. And so that's a big success story for us in Port Granby and it's helping us as we move forward with the Port Hope project, which is a more complex project that is taking longer, but is very similar in terms of the facility design. Okay, um, so the just just so that we're clear, the Port Granby project is essentially completed. You're, you're right. The, the Port Granby project, uh, last year we finally 
capped the engineered containment mound. So what the Port Granby project includes is, a, is an above ground mound. And the way that works is that there is a baseliner system, multiple layers of both uh, manufactured and natural materials. So like a big pound cake. And then you've got the waste that's, you know, 10 meters of waste kind of put in the middle of this thing. And then another engineered cover system with more layers that go on top of it to essentially isolate the waste from the environment for the long term. So we are complete the construction. We have remediated the site. It's a major success story for us and for the community that has been waiting for this to happen for many, many years. Uh, but we're not walking away. Our facility still has wastewater treatment plants. We continue to monitor the surrounding environment to make sure that the facility is operating and that the waste is truly being isolated. And we will be there as long as it takes in order to ensure that there is not having any negative impact on the environment. That is a good news story that it's completed and and that it's in good shape and that things look a lot better. That's good to know. A lot of people are under the impression that, you know, should the soil ever become contaminated that it's impossible to clean it up. So I think that's also good to know that it's not impossible. We have done it actually. Yes, very true. And in, in fact, um, when we're talking about this material, we're talking about low level radioactive waste, meaning that the, the, the material is not fissionable. You can't make weapons out of it. It, it barely has a even dose signature. So Lots and lots of study has gone into this, uh, the particular issue in Port Hope and Port Granby, because it is well known that this material has been in the community. So in fact, the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission, Canada's nuclear regulator, has done uh, extensive studies and actually looked at 40 different studies of Port Hope population over time. And there's been no link to increased cancer or other diseases as a result of the uh, low level waste that has been in the communities. So ultimately, the reason that we're, that this project needs to take place is one, because the community wanted it to be cleaned up because you know what, it's an environmental issue. And two, uh, in many years, I, I mean, it's a little different now because of the housing market, but for many years in the past, people were thinking that it was, it was uh, something that was generated by a federal crown corporation and needs to be addressed because there's a perception out there that, you know, why would I want to move my family to Port Hope when it's got all this radioactive waste, as I've read in the Toronto Star, and there is this perception out there that, you know, radioactive waste, it's this horrible thing, and it can be, but in the concentrations we're seeing in Port Hope, it's, it, the science is showing that, in fact, no, one, it, it's not causing a health impact, but two, uh, yeah, you can certainly deal with it, and the best way to deal with it is the way we are, which is through engineered containment and an above ground mound. And just on that topic of the of the community perception, like how has this project been received? Have, has there been overwhelming support? Has there been opposition? Has there been a mix? What does the community think of it? Yeah, and that's a great question because this project, really, when you think about this project, it's this evolution uh, that we've gotten to the point where there's now the project underway. But in the lead up, it had been controversial. Uh, it is community driven. So there are many people in the community at the time when they were pushing for the project, including the municipalities and the representatives of council, uh, did want this project to go through. Uh, but at the same time, you know, there's a perception 
that, you know, by bringing this massive project to the community, it sheds more light on the issue. And so there's always been two sides of the story around the project. But as we've gotten underway, we also have to make it, make it clear that times have changed. The community itself has changed. Um, this project started in 2001, and that meant we were doing environmental assessments. We were getting licensing. Those things took 10 years. But by the time we actually started to do the cleanup, uh, it was, you know, into the 2015 timeframe, 2018, and by then people's understanding of environmental issues were different. People's kind of understanding of the science had, had evolved. And so we are seeing now that most people are, are supportive of this environmental project in concept. Uh, the issue is that it is a very massive construction project, very massive. In fact, I live in the community, so I see it every day. I, I walk the dog or go out for, for lunch. You see CNL working in this community doing something. And so because of that, you know, that creates disturbance. Uh, and also a very interesting and unique part of this project is that, as I mentioned before, People used the contaminated fill for the purpose of building their homes. They also used, you know, discarded uh, stuff from the plant, like to build bunk beds, for example, in their homes or, or structures. And so part of what we have to do is we have to test 5,000 properties, about 5,000 properties in town. And then out of those, where we find the, the historic low-level waste, we have to go out and clean up those properties. And we need to do that on a neighborhood-by-neighborhood -neighborhood basis, which does... Uh, have an impact on people's everyday lives. Just, I mean, I recently had my basement flooded and I just went through a normal everyday reno. And even that really, disrupt, uh, really disrupted my day to day. So we are seeing that people who have to live through the construction, though they have agreed to it and they do want the waste removed, uh, to go through the process is difficult. And, that, and then, so what it's been is it's been an evolution from um, concerns about health concerns, which have mostly dissipated, to more concerns about the impact of the project that are temporary, but they're still significant. And have you had many people or many responses that are kind of of the opinion, like, we don't want you to clean this up, just leave it alone? <laughs> like, have, have you had people that say that? Yeah. Why are we doing this? Yes, absolutely. And, and again, and it kind of leans back to the fact that, that people are well-educated. We have a very well-educated population. And, and in fact, in Port Hope, you know, people really understand this stuff because they, many have been living here for generations and have seen this. And so, yeah, we, we do get that. And this is a voluntary program. So in terms of uh, if someone in particular, you know, either doesn't want to go forward with it, that's completely up to them. Um, and we do have that because of a number of reasons. Maybe they don't agree that there's any issue with having the waste on their property, or maybe they've, they've decided uh, that they don't want to go through the construction because the, especially now that we've seen such a hot um, real estate market, that people feel they can sell their homes regardless. Uh, that yeah. was one of the impotence for this. So like, say somebody says right now they own a home and they're like, I don't want you to clean it up. Then they sell it and the new owner wants it cleaned up. Are they like, we, do they we, have we, an we avenue to get it. it cleaned up? Yep. We, so as long as we, the, the one issue there is that we are on a schedule. This is a federally funded project and it costs about $1.28 billion. So it's not chump change to do this kind of project. Mm -hmm. um, and we do have a schedule 
So uh, as we move forward, and what I hadn't really mentioned yet is that in addition to those private properties, you know, we're doing massive cleanup of public land. So the, all of the waterfront area, we're dredging hundreds of thousands of cubic meters of sediment from the harbor. We're, we're having to do road cleanups. We're having to do ravines. Um, we're having to worry about public structures and buildings and everything else. So as we move forward, there is a cutoff date eventually where we won't be accepting any more signups because in our in terms of the uh, private property remediation because our schedule won't allow it. However, uh, it, we do understand that these situations happen. Uh, properties transact and change hands. And so we still do have a process and anyone can contact our office at the Port Hope Area Initiative and um, we, we, can try, we can fit them into the process. Uh, but as we get to the point where we cannot anymore, we will be communicating that to the community at large. Right. Have there been any instances where, you know, people refuse to buy a home in Port Hope? Have you seen that? happening a lot or is that more of a rare occurrence? I, I would say it is it is quite rare. There have been a few instances where, you know, property insurance, you know, things like that might pop up where, you know, an insurance company might be, you know, put off, what, what do you mean radioactive waste? But we do have a, uh, a communications program where we will go out and we'll talk to those companies, we'll talk to uh, mortgage lenders and, and uh, the like in order to sort of educate them about, you know, that it's not, that the risk is not there and that we are federally funded and we're cleaning up the, uh, the waste. Right. Uh, however, what we've really seen at this point is, is the, the market is so hot that it's not a big factor for most people. Again, like we, we encourage anyone and, and the local real estate agents all know this. We provide radiological status letters from our office in Port Hope, meaning that if anybody who's interested in buying a property wants to know the history of the property in terms of the waste, uh, we, they can come to our office and they can request a radiological status letter, which gives them the history. Has there been any previous cleanups? Do we have any evidence that there's waste there? Uh, you know, is there, what is the future plans? So that uh, we wanna make sure that buyers walk into these transactions with their eyes wide open, but the overwhelming majority are, are okay with the situation and they're buying anyway. Yeah, I find that's one of the, I don't wanna say main concerns, but a big concern we hear here when we're talking about the DGR is, you know, people don't wanna, people aren't gonna to wanna to buy property here. Or people aren't gonna to want to, you know, buy egg products that are from here. And I kind of look at it as no matter what, there's always going to be someone who doesn't want to move here for some reason. And I think nuclear can be scary when people don't understand it. And truth be told, a lot of people don't understand nuclear. It's complicated. And, you know, there's this, there's this, oh, if the DGR comes here, people won't want to live here. But we don't talk about the people who maybe want to move to the country from the city, but then find out there's a huge chicken barn down the street. They won't buy the house because the chicken barn's there like that. We don't talk about people who avoid agriculture or people who avoid, you know, a gas plant or whatever. It seems to be this situation of nuclear scares people. And I think people forget that a lot of different reasons scare people away from buying a house. It's not just nuclear. Um, so it's reassuring that Port Hope isn't, you know, this place where no one will buy. Yeah, I, I completely agree. That's a great point. And I, I think that the two things that, to talk about that when it comes to Port Hope is that one, uh, 
at least in our situation, there is a there is a federal government commitment to address the issue. So we're actually addressing the issue for the community. And two, uh, the, we have done lots of studies and we have also from the regulator has lots of studies out there that we have available and are happy to talk to people about that sort of that show this, the impact on health is, is not there. So it, it really isn't uh, the scary kind of town that it was made out to be back in, back in maybe the 80s and 90s. But at this point, um, we've been basically our campaign and communications with the community and with anybody who's come in is to, to help them understand the science in a way that's understandable to somebody who doesn't think about this stuff all the time and has to battle with the, the images of Fukushima and all this kind of stuff. It's just not the reality when we're talking about low level waste. Mm. Where we do have some issues is that this project in in its effort to to help the environment in order to remove that waste and put it into the facility uh, we do end up having to do a lot of intensive uh, construction with and removal of structures removal of trees removal of things that are important to the community and so actually we found ourselves in a situation now where we need to look at the projects very strategically and and with eyes wide open to the fact that we want to make sure that this project is creating an environmental benefit and not doing more damage than it than it uh, was meant to do and so as we've continued to study the contaminants in and have lots and lots of data about what is in the soil you know we're having to work with the municipality we're having to work with homeowners we're having to work with the canadian nuclear safety commission to say look there are some situations where either homeowners they they've said you know what i don't want you to do that part of my property because the, i built that gazebo for my daughter to be to be uh, married in and i don't want you have to remove that in fact i'd rather have that waste there than you remove it and we have to be able to work with them again or don't take down project. the giant oak the dogs buried under it yeah exactly yeah. and you yeah. know what that's that's a reality there's a, you know when we're going because we are literally in the backyards bedrooms and basements of many people's homes and you know what you find stuff it's the yep. truth of the matter and, and it's very it's very intrusive for people so um, we, we need to work with them. And we also need to work with the municipality because as I mentioned before, there's lots of public land uh, as well that, that requires some form of remediation. But we have to be careful that if we have a situation where we have low level contamination in soil that's inside a forest and we've got many trees there, uh, do we really wanna be taking down all these trees to get to this stuff that isn't really causing a problem? So these are the kind of challenges we face today. And just out of curiosity, then, what is the what is the limit for cleaning up? What radiation dose limit or whatever are you trying to get to? Like, is the goal to have background level or is it to be a certain dose to the public or what is the limit? So one thing to say is that as we test for the historic waste, we're looking for very specific contamination and we, we need to find four things in order for us to determine that it's low level waste. That includes arsenic radium-226, thorium, and uranium. So if we, if we find something that has all four of those, uh, then, we, then we know we've got low-level waste as opposed to different stuff from other processes or from, you know, say people mm -hmm. are working on their cars in the backyard or whatever. Yeah. So we have to go through that process. And in our license, our CNSC license, 
um, we have a criteria that we have to meet. So uh, basically for the contaminants that are already, uh, you know, Environment Canada standards, we have to, we have to meet those standards. So for uh, arsenic, it's 18 parts per million, for example. So if we go to a property and we see that they've got contamination of arsenic at 25 parts per million, we have to continuously dig and dig and test and dig and test until we've got to 18 or lower, just as an example. Right. With other standards that aren't, that aren't universal or aren't federal standards, uh, we would actually, as part of the environmental assessment, there were scientific analysis done to basically say, okay, what do we need to clean up, say, the radium to? Well, we need to clean it up to a level that is reasonably achievable and a conservative level. So um, I don't have the exact number in front of me, but it's very conservative. So everything that we're cleaning up to at this point is well below any level that would be of any concern for public health. Uh, that's kind of the idea. And these things are enshrined in our license. So we do have to meet those criteria. Once we get on a property and we begin to remediate, we have to continue to dig until we've hit that criteria, that very conservative, conservative criteria, which is causing some issues, again, if we have to go under trees and things like that in order to get it. Yeah, it, it turns into a pretty complicated process, I'm sure. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> yeah, that's an understatement. <laughs> I think that covers all of the questions that I had for you today. Is there anything else that you wanted to add? There is one thing that I was hoping I could add in. So as a result, sort of as our process through this, and, and again, we've been able to build this facility in Port Granby and it's working and we've shown that we're able to do it. So in fact, there's a similar story that's happened at our, our kind of home base for Canadian nuclear laboratories, and that's Chalk River Laboratories. Chalk River Laboratories is the home of 70 years worth of groundbreaking science in, nuclear, in the nuclear industry in terms of things that have been beneficial in terms of cancer treatment, in terms of energy, in terms of um, things that have benefited millions and millions of people. Chalk River has been owned by Atomic Energy of Canada uh, and it still is. However, Canadian Nuclear Laboratories is now running the Chalk River Laboratory site. And as a result, similar to what happened in Port Hope, as a result of all the industrial stuff that happened at that site, there is now waste there too. And we are actually in the process now of putting together a proposal to build a near surface disposal facility, which is actually very similar in nature to the long-term waste management facilities that I just referred to. And we are about to go in front of the, the uh, Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission to um, basically put, our, put forth our proposal and the CNSC will make a decision on whether or not we are allowed to build that facility at Chalk River. Um, and at this point, we are seeking the support of our stakeholders and of the public in order to submit interventions or have their voices heard at an upcoming hearing that's going to start in, uh, at, in June of this year. Now, um, we encourage anyone to come to our website or to give us a call to talk about it more um, or to visit our specific website on the NSDF project um, and learn more. And if anyone would like to intervene, the deadline to do so, you can simply do it by submitting a letter to the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission. And that deadline is April 11th. So just wanted to make sure that I got that in there. 
Yeah, no, that's a, a really good point. That is actually on my radar. I've had a few people <laughs> message me about um, the near surface disposal facility. Um, so when you look at all of the, the projects that are ongoing right now, the successful Port Granby project, um, the Port Hope project that's going on, the, the Chalk River project, you know, seeing how we are capable of dealing with nuclear waste, like, do you have concerns with a repository for spent fuel? No, absolutely not. I think it is the most logical, um, it is the most logical solution for the intermediate level or higher level waste that's been proposed by the NWMO. Uh, and in fact, CNL has been working with, with NWMO as well, because as I mentioned before, there are multiple different sites, there are multiple different activities that happen at both at Chalk River, but at other sites that, that uh, CNL operates. And, and there are other waste streams that get created that are intermediate level or other level that, that actually require something like a deep geological reserve. So no, there's no concerns. Uh, when we're talking about low level waste, we have the solution. It's the engineered containment facilities. Um, we're building them, we're proving them. This has been proven internationally. And I think the next logical step for the higher level stuff is the deep geological repositories. I think that's, that's kind of where um, where I'm coming from and like to highlight, you know, that there are successful programs for all levels of nuclear waste. And, yeah. you know, we know how to deal with spent fuel. We know how to deal with nuclear waste. We know how to shield. We know how to create barriers. We know how to do all of those things and we need to put them together to make a solution sooner rather than later. Well, I really do appreciate you coming on to do this today. It's been great. Thanks very much for having me. It was uh, great to talk to you. And that's it for this episode of Willing to Listen South Brews Proud. I look forward to further investigating Canada's plan for spent nuclear fuel along with all of you. Thanks so much for joining me. And remember, we don't have to agree on anything to be kind to one another. Mm -hmm.